This kind of abuse used to be uh, in the sort of deceptiveness that goes along with both Munchausen and Munchausen by proxy used to be a lot harder to pull off. And you used to see that it was mostly people who had a medical background, so mostly people who are working as nurses, um, that could pull it off because they knew enough about um, they knew enough about medical stuff. And like it used to be that you would have to go to the library, you'd have to get a medical textbook, you'd have to look up symptoms. Well, what do you do now? You go on WebMD. So it's easier to fake things. And it's also there's and, you know, it used to be that sort of like, OK, who could we sort of exploit and get attention from in the olden days, right? The people who are in our actual communities. So with enough time, you know, hopefully like people would sort of catch on that this person is is lying. Right. And, and you do see that with a lot of these cases where they just burn through an, a huge number of, of communities. But now there are just infinite communities Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Maureen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The 12-year-old son finally took the stand. As I heard a scream, I heard a thud. It was about this loud. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself, and it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Hey, movers. Welcome back to another episode of Moving Past Murder. I'm your host, Collier Landry, and what's going on? What's going on, people? Happy Friday. I've got a fantastic episode in store for you today. I have my guest and friend, Andrea Dunlop, joining the program. She's going to talk about her new podcast, Nobody Should Believe Me. But first, I'm very excited to welcome those of you guys who've discovered the podcast through Jelly Smack's Unfiltered Stories. And those of you that discovered me from TikTok, welcome to the program. And big exciting news this week, this podcast is a finalist for a Signal Award. That's right. This podcast is up for an award for a best exclusive content. And I would love it if you guys could vote for me. Go to www.callyourlandry.com forward slash vote to cast your vote today. Callyourlandry.com forward slash vote. It's in the show notes as well. Please, if you wouldn't mind, vote for this podcast. I would love to win this award. It would be so cool. And with your help, I feel I can do that. So enough about that. I want to go to this week's listener question of the week. So this comment comes from Chris B on YouTube. It says, Collier was more mature, wise, and smart at age 11 than most adults in today's society. Excellent work, Collier. So I guess that means if I was smart then, not much has changed. So I guess I'm just the average adult. I don't know how that works, but um, I don't know. Maybe (laughs) I'm just being cheeky. I'm in a good mood Uh, because, you know, the LA Rams won and they have Baker Mayfield, who was a former Cleveland Brown. And they won last night, which was kind of cool in the last like minute of the game. It was fantastic. So my guest today is Andrea Dunlop. Andrea has a new podcast called Nobody Should Believe Me, where she discusses Munchausen by proxy. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here with you and talking to your listeners. My story, so my my new podcast is called Nobody Should Believe Me, and it's an investigative deep dive into Munchausen by proxy. Um, for those who don't know, that is a form of child abuse that involves a caretaker, almost always a mother of young children, um, fabricating, exaggerating, or inducing illness in their child. Um, I can get into some of the nuances as we sort of go through it between the crime and the mental illness, but mostly I talk about it as purposes for the purposes of the show as, as a crime. Um, so that is an issue that I have a very deep connection to because I had a situation in my own life. Um, and I want to be very clear that my sister has never been charged with a crime um, and she maintains her innocence. She has been investigated um, twice over the past 12 years for uh, for medical child abuse. And those investigations were brought on by um, by reports from two separate hospitals in the area, hospital systems in the area. it, during the first investigation, my family fell out with uh, with her over it. Um, she cut 
us out of her life and out of my, at the time, nephew's life. Now um, she has a second child. She has a daughter also. Um, so that is that is the thing that sort of happened in my life. That was, that was the impact was that this investigation um, and the sort of specter of this um, cost me my relationship with, with my only sibling and um, certainly just, you know, had a huge impact on, on my family, on my parents. Um, It's been a very, very sad thing. Um, Not something I ever envisioned for my life. You know, when I was younger, my sister and I were close growing up. Of course. Um, so, you know, it has taken, it has taken a a very long time to get here where I'm sort of able to talk about it publicly. Um, and that's really been a journey. So that started really this sort of phase of my work with it, um, started in, started in 2019 when my last novel came out. I'm a novelist by trade. That's my sort of main job. Um, uh, that book is called We Came Here to Forget, and that was partly inspired by my family's story. And when that book came out, I was a new mom. I had an eight-month-old. So I think, you know, becoming a parent certainly brought back a lot of that sadness. I think anyone yeah. who is a new parent really spends a lot of time thinking about their own family dynamics, anything that's really, you know... <laughs> Like sad that's happened in your own life, especially if it's with someone in your immediate family. I mean, I think that just comes back in this really powerful way. And so that certainly was the impetus for writing that book. Um, The decision to talk publicly about the fact that I had this personal connection, which again is, is tricky to talk about um, because she has, she has not been charged. So, um, you know, but I, I, I wanted to open up about it because certainly when my family and I were going through that first investigation and the first investigation, um, there was not a criminal, there was not a criminal police investigation. It was just a CPS investigation and the state did not file charges against her in that first investigation. Um, in the second one, the state did a family court judge dismissed that case. That was right around the time the book came out, um, in 2019. And, um, the criminal investigation went on for about two years and they did not end up pressing charges. Um, so just some sort of a little bit of detail there just to sort of set the scene, but, um, sure. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I I wanted to be open about those events in my life, um, that, that surrounded that issue of Munchausen by proxy, because when that term was first introduced to my family and I, which was, you know, when my parents went to talk to our family doctor about some concerns and she said, you know, this is, this is, a possible, you know, this is kind of what this is sounding like. And then, you know, my mother went and and spoke to one of the doctors treating my, um, my, my nephew and they actually reported it. So we did not ever report it to authorities. We just had no idea what we were doing. I mean, that's, that's kind of the gist of that. We, that was the first time I'd really heard that term. And one of the interesting things when I was reading about your podcast is as you were doing the podcast or even pursuing making the podcast, you thought that this was something that was sort of an oddity or a rarity in our society. And you actually became really aware of how prevalent it is, how, how it happens all the time. And I guess for me, you know, I, I, you know, I think I, I grow, I go back to thinking like growing up as a child, I was asthmatic. Right. And I had really bad asthma and it started in my late, like, single digits what would you like like nine ten years old and it probably lasted until i was about 13 14 sort of grew out of it in adolescence thank god i mean i still have it i still struggle with it but it's not nearly like what it was right but i remember having even um you know like friends whose moms were hypochondriacs and i remember thinking about at that time like oh wow they're really like not letting their child experience something because they're all oh, they're afraid of them going out and getting germs or things like that. And that seems like a very logical thing. This is a whole other level. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's when I that so I remember when I first became I think it was the Gypsy Rose case or whatever, which is probably the most famous of this, right? That uh I remember hearing about this and going, "Oh, like this is a thing." And obviously this was a path of discovery for you, so tell me what that was like. 
Yeah. So I want to circle back to one thing you said, because this is a really important nuance. And it's one of the questions that I probably get asked the most is sort of how this relates to hypochondria um, or be just being an anxious parent, you know, being a parent that's worried at every little sniffle. And, um, you know, certainly like being like a new first time parent, that's something I remember where you just sit there and you're like, oh my God, oh my God, are they still, you know, are they okay? Are they okay? Um, so that yeah. is, you know, obviously very common. Um, Munchausen by proxy and factitious disorders are characterized by intentional deception. So parents who are hypochondriacs or extremely anxious parents or even are suffering from full-on delusions, that is a completely separate thing. And it is fairly obvious to doctors and authorities when that is the case versus Munchausen by proxy. Munchausen by proxy, medical child abuse is characterized by knowing deception. So that is something really important for people to remember that people who have Munchausen by proxy do not actually think their child is sick. They know that they are doing it. They are aware of it. Um, one of the you know um, psychiatrists that we talked to talked about they sort of do this compartmentalization, but they do understand what they're oh. doing. So it's not a question of sort of like they're not quote crazy. It's not helicopter is, parenting. Correct. Correct. And yeah. there, you know, sometimes people do over medicalize their children because they're anxious, but that's a problem where if you can help that parent deal with their anxiety, then you can soothe the problem. It is not that simple in the case of a Munchausen by proxy perpetrator. And I think oftentimes when you have those parents who are overly anxious about their children, a lot of that stems from abuse that they had suffered as a child, right? Whether it be neglect, whether it be uh, the people pleasing that you learn when you're, if you have a parent who's a narcissist, much like myself, right? You you sort of, you know, you're always the people pleaser. And so you grow up in this, you know, abandonment issues and things of that nature. And so then the child leaves, you have these anxieties. But what you're saying is it's, a, it's an intentional deception. Yes, it's There's intentional. nothing tied to it. Yes. And so I, I always want to, you know, I think that's, it's a good point of clarification for people to understand because I yeah. think that one of the biggest misconceptions is that this is something that should be treated as a mental health issue. Now, there is an underlying psychological disorder that causes this behavior. That's called factitious disorder imposed on another. That's sort of the term that's in the DSM, right? That's the term, that's the psychiatric term for it. Um, and that is when people do this behavior and get an intrinsic emotional reward for it. So they're getting, you know, they're doing it to get attention. They're doing it to be seen as a heroic parent. They're doing it to get sympathy. This is how they get their emotional needs met, right? So that's the underlying disorder. Um, but that's the same relationship. You know, the detective that I've, that I worked with on this podcast, Detective Mike Weber, who has a long, long history in crimes against children, he always makes this parallel that I think is so apt. Um, Pedophilic disorder is also a mental illness. It's a disorder. But we don't ask, like, has this person been diagnosed with pedophilic disorder? We asked, have they abused a child? So that's the same question here. Yes, there may be an underlying mental health issue, but it's not something that someone is going to be diagnosed with in the absence of committing abuse and being charged for it. So you brought up Gypsy Rose Blanchard. That's like easily the most famous story of our year. She was never charged. Her mother, um, uh, Dee Dee Blanchard, was never charged with a crime. Um, Gypsy was not separated from her successfully, and she was never diagnosed with Munchausen by proxy. Now, everyone obviously can look at that case and determine that that's what was going on. But I, I, I point that out to say that, like, it's not something where someone says, oh, I'm having I mean, that would be a hope, I suppose, is that someone if they were having those kinds of thoughts would go and seek treatment. But that currently is not 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 what happens. Wow. You know, I, I one of the things that I and in you know doing a little bit of research before we spoke was I realized that this also will often times involve procedures that they'll put kids through like surgeries. Oh yeah, and I guess how does that happen? Like how does that happen? Like how does a child? How does a doctor do that? Is it that they're so good? Is there like a is there like an element of psychopathy involved in this? Do you think? I mean, obviously we can't. We're not mental health professionals so we can't diagnose these things but like you know i i know that my father's a psychopath right <laughs> you know what i mean like it's pretty clear that my father is a psychopath a sociopath he's narcissistic it's all bald and it's sort of you know all bundled together in a nice pretty bow yeah. <laughs> ugly bow yeah. right but but 
you know, I can't, it's just the deception's so good. Are they so good at convincing someone like a, like a surgeon or medical professionals? Like, is that is that how insidious this goes? This yeah, is? So, so I'll kind of address that question in two parts. So one is the sure. sort of psychological makeup of, of people. And yes, I should put the disclaimer. I am not a psychiatrist or a doctor or a medical professional. Um, however, I have spent a lot of time researching this. I have ta- yeah. spent a lot of time. I'm very close with some of the top experts in the world, like Dr. Mark Feldman, with whom I've spent many hours of my life talking, talking about this. So sure. um, it is a very complicated psychological profile. Uh, it's very high comorbidity, as in if you have the one, you have the other, um, with the cluster B personality disorders with which you're probably familiar. So things like sure. narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, hi- um, histrionic personality disorder. So all things that are very difficult to deal with on their own, let alone along with you know that underlying disorder that we talked about, factitious disorder imposed on another. So you do see a lot of that like deceptive behavior, a real genuine lack of empathy. Um, I'm not sure with the um, sociopath, psychopath thing. I mean, I, it certainly seems like the, you know, the descriptions of, of, a, of a psychopath or sociopath certainly seems to match in that they're not thinking of other people. They're not able to attach to other people the way certainly someone who does something like poison their own child, um, you know, subject their child to a, a necessary surgery procedure is not truly attached to that child, is not able to feel empathy the way that you or I would. So I think certainly there there are elements of that. In terms of is this something that is, you know, it, are these people able to commit this because they're masterminds? The answer is sometimes. Certainly the perpetrator we talk about in season one of Nobody Should Believe Me, Hope Yabara, was incredibly, was and is, incredibly smart, incredibly charming, incredibly manipulative. I sort of think of her as like the kind of classic perpetrator. But the more I got into this and started looking at a lot of cases, I have seen other perpetrators that were nothing like her, that were not that smart. The reality is, when you think about it, this abuse is actually, and and what we've seen is that the system is very easy to exploit to commit this abuse. And any parent can tell you like and and I think this is how I I like to make the connection for people to sort of bring it down to earth from this like oh it's such an exotic disorder that it's this one in a million monster gypsy rose blanchard story um we all when we take our parents you know when we take our sorry excuse me not our parents <laughs> when we take our children to the pediatrician you know I have a 5 month old and a 4 year old when I take my kids to the pediatrician um which I fortunately have not had to do overly much, you know, but just for their normal visits or if something is is up, mm-hmm. you spend 10 minutes talking with the doctor and the doctor is 100% reliant on the parent's version of events. They are spending a tiny amount of time with that child. So what we see in these cases is a lot of stuff that the parents would have control over. So super common. um, And I want to say as a caveat before I sort of make this list of, of things that I've seen a lot of in these cases, that none of these things, if they are present in legitimately present, make like a parent more suspicious for this abuse, right? So we see a lot uh-huh. of pre- premature births, for instance, um, and there have been perpetrators that have confessed to how they, you know, induced a premature birth. That does not mean that parents who have premature babies should be looked at with additional suspicion. So I always want to make that caveat. But yeah, just like somebody that goes by a, by a firearm doesn't mean they're going to go out and commit a mass murder. Right, exactly. So I mean, you know, just like <laughs> or a car, these are, or these buying are alcohol patterns. Be a drunk driver, yeah. Right, like we see a lot of yeah, exactly. We see we see a lot of these um like a lot of these uh characteristics in these cases that doesn't mean that those characteristics make someone like more you know more likely to commit the abuse so we see a lot of premature births now any baby that's born premature is going to have some legitimate issues so often these cases will start off with some legitimate issue um or some kind of diagnosis and then it gets sort of exaggerated or you get things that are induced. So you see a lot of feeding issues. Feeding issues are a huge one that I've seen in almost every case that I've that I've looked at where the baby is diagnosed failure to thrive. So, you know, again, as a new mom, I'm very familiar with this. The mom is the person who feeds the baby, whether they're breastfeeding or bottle feeding yeah. or whatever. So if you were presenting your child and they were underweight and you're in a doctor's office for 10 minutes, and you say, I'm feeding the baby all the time, and they're spitting up, 
and they just can't keep anything down. Why would the doctor know that you're lying? They wouldn't. I mean, the doctor is, you know, and we talked to a couple of doctors and really get in depth on this in the third third episode of the show, just like their experience of like how they do their job. Now, 99% of the time, this is a fine way to do things. Most parents would never lie to a doctor about their child's symptoms, but a child can't speak for themselves. So if they're saying, my child's having seizures, my child's having apnea, um, my child's, you know, my child's not gaining weight no matter what I do. Um the doctor is going to respond to those concerns as though the parent is telling the truth because of course most of the time they are um so it's really not that hard to pull off and then you know basically you see things escalating so one of the most common surgeries we see is what's called the g-tube surgery um which is you know when a when a, a child is having feeding issues, they get a, a tube surgically implanted in, in their in their in their abdomen. Um, so yes, I mean that is how it escalates to, to surgeries. But I've seen even sort of more extreme, like I've seen brain surgeries. I've seen, you know, we talked about one case where there was a brain shunt put in a child's head unnecessarily. Um, so I mean, it, you know, it, it really like it, it can run the gamut, but it's a lot of things that like. It's based on the doctor's reports, or excuse me, the parents' reports to the doctor. So I think people have this idea that it is this sort of mastermind thing. And again, sometimes it is. With Hope, it definitely was. She had a whole con going about her own cancer. You know, it was very, but you know, she, you can, you can, it's always tests that you can manipulate. You know, it's never like, they never come in and say, my child has a broken bone. It's never something that you could see on an x-ray, right? It's these other things that rely on you describing symptoms. Like like seizures, for example. Yeah, he had another seizure this morning. He was yeah. vomiting all over himself. The doctor isn't going to say, "Can you show me video of that yeah. <laughs> to prove yourself?" Yeah, right? No, well, and and nor should they. I mean, doctors wow. couldn't couldn't operate if they were doing that, right? So it's like, no, they I think that's why it's so important to help people understand not just yeah. the individual red flags, but like the whole pattern of behavior because. You don't want, and like, I don't, again, like my, my worst nightmare would be to feel, you know, make someone who has a child that has a seizure disorder or has CF or was born premature to make them feel like more worried that, you know, they're going to be falsely accused, which I don't think is something parents should worry about. I really don't think that happens. Yeah, of course. No, we're not here to, yeah. You know, again, you said you're not a psychologist, you're not a psychiatrist, neither am I, but what is the what what is the why do they do this like is it financial i guess i was always under the impression there's some sort of financial benefit but is it financial is like they get they get financial aid for the child's surgeries and they spend that money or is it just their their overall need for attention or do they not know yeah. So, well, they, they do know. And actually, so factitious disorders are the sort of, that's like the umbrella term for a number of different things. And actually there, there is a difference between doing it for money and doing it for intention. So there's sure. one disorder called malingering. So that is when someone does something when they fake illness, either in themselves or their child for a tangible reward. So that's somebody that that's a straight up con, right? So they're either trying to get a, get out of something. So they're trying to get out of work, get a disability, get a fraudulent disability payment, um, raise money on GoFundMe for a cancer that they don't have, um, that kind of thing. So if it's purely for financial motives, that is called malingering. Now, where it gets very complicated is that a lot of these cases that you see, there is some financial gain and there is some financial fraud. But what we think of as a distinction, and this is all coming from Dr. Mark Feldman. Again, this is not like me sure. you know, pulling this from the ether. This is who I learned all of this from. So <laughs> yeah, he is a great resor- resource on these. Um, but with, with, um, with Munchausen by proxy, with Munchausen, um, those disorders are really, even if they are doing something like a GoFundMe or they're getting their kids sent to Disneyland for Make-A-Wish or that, you know, those kind of things, the primary motive is thought to be really that sympathy and that attention because they will do that in the absence of any other sort of tangible reward. So the way I've come to think of it is that, you know, and this is the way that, that, that the experts describe it is like that is the only way that person can get their emotional needs met. So like that is the only way that they can feel loved. And when I interviewed Hope Yabara for the podcast, that's how she described it. She said, this was what I thought I had to do to feel loved. And now 
That interview was very complicated. I watched the movie about your case and watched you interview your dad. I was having yeah, I was so many say, flashbacks I'm, to that conversation. I guarantee that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds it sounds like there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. Um, but you know, but I thought that that was I thought she that that was probably you know, the case. And, and they're often, you know, often perpetrators, you know, also suffer from, you know, depression. And so these are people that just can't, they can't get what they need from the sort of normal positive attention. They feel like they have to be in that role of being a victim, role of being, you know, um, someone who people need to take care of. And I think like, there's a part of this, again, just with with the intention of bringing some humanity to this topic and sort of bringing it down to earth, I think there's a sure. part of this that we can relate with, right? When you have an illness, like think about when you're a kid and you get to stay home sick from from school, you know, and like your mom takes care of you and she lets you have whatever food that that you wouldn't get to normally have. And like, you know, people people tend to like show up for you when you're in a crisis. Doesn't have to be necessarily yes. an illness, but like people rally for you, right? It's like and that I think is what Or in my case, or in my case the family abandons you, but you know, that's yeah. that's a whole other story. I know. I'm so sorry. Um I, I have so many I have so many thoughts, but that's for so many day. thoughts and questions. So many yeah, thoughts. Exactly. Yeah, and a lot of that that I related to. Yeah, I I mean I think like those sort of mass things of like when we talked about Hope Yabara's story of like you know, so part of her story, like the thing that that blew apart the, f the fact that she was abusing her child um, was the revelation that after telling her friends and family that she had cancer for eight years and that she was in hospice care, she never had cancer at all, they discovered. And so she had had this incredibly intricate cancer battle where she'd had two remissions and both times she had remissions she had these massive parties and there was like a hundred people at her house and she she went skydiving and she you know parachuted into the second party and just this is it's so dramatic right and so you sort of think about like that's what they're getting out of it they're getting out of it that like look at all these people and how much they love me and like they're getting that sort of emotional feedback and that emotional caretaking and it's very exploitative but i think there's an element of it especially when it's people doing it to themselves i think once it gets to the level of where you're doing it to a child then there's like no longer any sympathy that needs to be had there but i think like to me i've come to a place where i look at perpetrators and i think like that is sad like that is sad that someone would have to go to that extreme to feel to feel loved yeah and it's interesting and i just want to point out because you munchausen is different than Munchausen by proxy. So Munchausen would be where she says she has cancer. She says, and she's personally gaining sympathy. And then the Munchausen by proxy is when she's doing it to the child. Is that, am I correct? Correct. Yes, correct. And so we do see pretty frequently Munchausen by proxy perpetrators start off with Munchausen. Munchausen. So I've read about, yeah. you know, we have a fake, the, that was one of the strongest parallels between my story and, you know, with my sister and Hope's story was that they both had fake pregnancies with twin girls that they lost at six months. And it was this very elaborate thing where everyone really believed they were pregnant. And so we do see a lot of like that kind of behavior um yeah so wow. it doesn't always it doesn't always like there are people that have that have munchausen that then do not go on to perpetrate on on their kids so that is possible yeah. but i certainly think it's like if someone has had those behaviors in their past that's certainly like a red flag and something to watch out for i remember so <laughs> my mother used to say when i was a kid she's like don't make that face or else you're gonna you're else you're asking god to make it stay that way right <laughs> and so i remember yeah, you make excuses, right? Even in even in adulthood, we do this. We're like, oh, I don't feel good, or oh, you know, it's like during the pandemic, I'm sure everybody was like, oh, I got COVID, I can't go, and I and I would, I always will stop short. I mean, I'm not a deceptive person to begin with because I'm not any good at it because I'm just I'm just not. But and you would think because I would learn from my father, like he was so good at decept <laughs> deception, I would learn something. But I, I'm terrible at it. But what I was going to say is I, I will often think to myself, you know, oh, I can't come in. I should just tell him I have COVID or whatever. I'm like, no, I'm not going to say that because then I'll get it. I don't want to bring that on to my to me. So I've never understood people who will and it, being sick. It's like, oh, my car broke down or oh, my this and that. I'm like, I can't say that. I just you know what? You got to just tell the truth because 
if you don't, then you're asking for trouble and your car is going to break down and you are going to get hacked. Your, your computer is going to get hacked. You are going to get robbed at gunpoint. Like you're like, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I, have, I think, you know, a lot of people inherently have this like Munchausen, but it's not a full blown disorder, but you know, Oh, feel bad for me. That's why I can't come. It's like an excuse, but it obviously with these people, it goes next level. It's right? an extreme. And I think, you know, one of the things that, I think is really interesting to talk about in the context of like the current culture and and this disorder is that I think we're becoming a lot more savvy about the fact that attention in itself is a reward, right? If you look at social yeah. media, like oh, yes, yeah. do people want dopamine, to like dope, ding, dopamine, dopamine, yeah, dopamine, exactly, ding, 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 right? Ding, like that's what all of those ding, companies, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yeah, that's what all those companies TikTok, exploit, TikTok, TikTok. and like. Yes, is there some financial motive maybe that you could eventually become an influencer and have brand deals? Sure. But like I think we all understand that the primary motive there is just attention, is love, right? So it's not it's not like I think attention seeking in and of itself almost gets a bad rap sometimes because like human beings need attention. They need connection, yeah. they need love. Like that's that's not wrong. That's what everyone needs and wants. The problem with people that have this disorder is that they're doing something extremely destructive to get there um and i think there's a whole like you said there's whole like you know deception is a huge part of this so usually in these cases you see a lot of other deceptive behaviors that don't have anything to do with medical so like a lot of like um financial fraud lying at work a lot of like really extreme infidelity so like that kind of thing that just sort of speaks to like being deceptive and not having a good deal of empathy years ago i had dated somebody who was pretty famous and they would they would talk about their you know they would do these posts on facebook which i would which at the time i was like god nobody like uses facebook like it's like it's, it's all about instagram because at the time it was like instagram was like on the rise right facebook had just purchased them i'm like you gotta use instagram but they wouldn't do that they'd be like oh they're just going wild did you see my likes on my post did you see and i was just like oh my god like every time i'm gonna have to be Every time I'm going to have to be around this individual, I better make sure that I go to their Facebook page and and like it and and know how many likes they got on that post. Because if I didn't, she would excoriate me and be like, "Why didn't you look at my post?" And be like, "Because I don't, because I don't give a fuck. Like because I don't care. Because I'm actually I'm here for you. I'm showing I'm up you for in this relationship. Yeah. I'm showing up for this relationship because we have a real relationship. We don't have this fake online thing. Like I think that was the first time that I became really acutely aware of the solipsism that exists from yeah and i mean where where this crosses over with these disorders is extremely alarming this kind of abuse used to be in the sort of deceptiveness that goes along with both munchausen and munchausen by proxy it used to be a lot harder to pull off and you used to see that it was mostly people who had a medical background so mostly people who are working as nurses um that yeah could pull it off because they knew enough about um, they knew enough about medical stuff. And like it used to be that yeah. you'd have to go to the library, you'd have to get a medical textbook, you'd have to look up symptoms. Well, what do you do now? You go on WebMD. So it's easier to fake things. And it's also there's and you know, it used to be that sort of like, okay, who could we sort of exploit and get attention from in the olden days, right? The people who are in our actual communities. So with enough time, you know, hopefully like people would sort of catch on that this person is is lying right and and you do see that with a lot of these cases where they just burn through an, a huge number of, of communities but now there are just infinite communities to to access so you can find a group that's dedicated to this rare thing or this breast cancer charity or this other thing or like these online groups or support groups and and there are people that do this that that do this behavior only online. So Dr. Mark Feldman actually coined the term Munchausen by internet. And so that's people who just go online and say they have cancer or whatever. So, but they're not telling, they're not actually going to the doctor. They're not actually telling their friends and family that they have cancer. They're only doing it online. Obviously that is in a way more benign. Um, and certainly in the case of Munchausen by proxy, you're glad to know that the child that they said was dying does not actually exist. Um, but, you know, I always want to also be clear that that is incredibly damaging. It does pull people in. People are credulous. They go into spaces where people are really vulnerable because they do have an illness or do have sick children um, and really exploit those people. Yeah. And it's really, really psychologically damaging to find out that you have been sort of 
putting forth this emotional energy to take care of someone and help someone and find out that they've been lying to you. That's obviously, you know, a huge betrayal. And that's very upsetting and very hard for people to get past. Yeah, I almost wonder if this also dovetails into, um, you know, because I think, you know, you're talking about, you know, years ago when you didn't have things like Facebook and social media, fueling these things, you had to be very specialized. It was sort of a niche, more of a niche thing because you had to have the specialized knowledge, right? I wonder if a lot of this, it was also inflicted, you know, talking about financial rewards with, you know, people that get into guardianships over loved ones who are elderly or, or can't be cared for. Or let's say a kid has a trust fund or something that was left by the grandparents. And I wonder if these, if maybe some of these parents do do this type of thing to gain financial control, maybe over certain things or certain aspects as well. I think, I don't know why I always take this back to a financial sort of benefit, because I guess that's just how I process it. But I, I think that there, I can just see that the manipulation is so is so good that it can it can tick all of these boxes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And 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 all of these different crimes can almost be perpetrated because of this. It's well, it's it's very insidious. It's a sure. lot. It's a lot to digest. It's a lot to digest. And and I, we really hoped in the podcast to you know because we talked to a lot of different people that had come at the issue from from different. So I, I ended up talking to Hope Yabara's whole family, and they were so lovely and so kind. Um, and so we talked to her father and her brother and sister and, you know, about what that experience was like for them. We talked to some survivors from a different case on the show. We talked to some dads that had been through some cases. And I think it's just like really, again, bringing it down to earth for people. And one of the big revelations that I came to in making the show, again, you kind of alluded to this earlier, of thinking that, you know, after that investigation and that rift with my sister, just thinking like, I don't know anyone else who's been through this. I mean, Collier, I'm sure you, you felt that way. It's like, there's not necessarily yeah. like a support group for people whose fathers no. murdered their mothers. And that's a story yeah. that like, when you tell someone, I'm sure that it's very upsetting for them. You probably end up having to like emotionally walk them through it. Um, yeah. And that's, that's really hard. <laughs> that's very, very isolating. Right. So I think, yeah. You know, what I came to as I was doing this story is realizing that everybody who's been through a case feels that way. And yet all of the experts that I spoke to, all of them agree that this is not rare. It's not common like every other house on the block is, you know, someone doing it, but it's just pre present in our communities the way that every other form of child abuse is. But we have not yet been ready to recognize this. I think there's something really particularly horrifying about a mother doing it because it is mostly mothers and sort of the premeditated nature of it. Um, I think it's just very hard for people to wrap their heads around. Um, and I think that people will do a lot of backflips to not see it, even if they're presented with a lot of evidence. Wow. Um, so taking it back to the podcast and taking it back to your personal experience. So you said your sister was never formally charged. Correct. And and so was so. Can you do you feel comfortable talking about how what happened or how this sort of came about with her? Because it was your nephew that was being. And are the children technically are they being gaslit, or is or is it just way more than that? Like everyone's being gaslit in this situation. <laughs> Well, so I think it's probably more helpful to talk about this in sort of like patterns and generalities. Um, uh -huh. Because, yeah, again, as I said, you know, like I, um, I certainly have a lot of fears about the situation with my sister because of a long history of her behavior that led up to that. You know, we had things like the, these incidents I describe in the in the podcast where she shaved her head in high school and said she was losing her hair. Um, she, when we were in our 20s, um, said she was pregnant with twins. I completely believed her. I thought I was going to be an auntie. She lost the pregnancy while we were all out of town. She described in detail to me being in the hospital and all of these things. And then it turned out that none of that had happened. And I mean, that, that took us, it, we believe that she was never pregnant at all. We know she was not, you know, she did not lose the babies the way she said she did. It was not until I talked to her fiance at the time somewhat recently that I was able to sort of go, okay, this is sort of 
she probably was never, never pregnant. She looked pregnant. We had a baby shower. The babies had names. It was very elaborate and it was very painful. And so when something like that happens and then she got pregnant again, her child was born premature. There started to be these issues piling up. Of course we had these fears. And then, you know, that she was investigated by CPS. I think we all felt something was going to be resolved. We wanted her to get help. We still loved her. We did not want to be out of her life. But after that, you know, this again, the state did not bring any, did not bring what's called a dependency petition in the first case. That means when they, the state files to have your children taken away. So that did not happen. It was dropped the first time around. Um, And she, you know, more or less said to us, unless you take my side here and say there's nothing wrong, then you're out of my life and you're not going to see my child. And that is not how we felt. Um, And so we lost the relationship with her. And then these subsequent things have happened. So, you know, the more recent investigation was for a child that I, that I have not met. Um, And so I think, you know, as those incidences sort of pile up, there's only to me, that's a lot to sort of explain away as coincidence. And you just said, (laughs) not to gloss that over, you just said there's another child you have not met, meaning there was an investigation into your... your, Yes. So the first investigation was into her older child, my nephew. Um, Uh Years later, when we were estranged from her, my whole family's estranged from her. Um, Years later, when we were estranged from her, she had another baby born very premature. And that child was, you know, in, in the hospital and, um, sorry, I'm just trying to remember the sequence of events. So no, that you're, no, you're, you're right fine. Here. Um, yeah. So that, that child was in the hospital. Um, we heard from a police detective that there was a criminal investigation into her. So we did talk yeah. to the authorities, but of course that was on background cause that was not a child that we had been allowed to meet. Um, uh-huh. That investigation went on for a couple of years. There was also that time the state did bring a dependency charge, did file for dependency against her. Um, that went to a family court judge. Um, two of the doctors, including a very experienced child abuse pediatrician, um, testified against her. And the judge decided to dismiss that testimony and dismiss the case. And wow, that's what happened. Um so those are the facts. <laughs> those are the yeah, things that yeah. those are the things yeah. that I know, right? Like this has been a long time that we have not been in touch. Um, I do not know my niece. I have never met her. I did not have any information to share with the authorities other than you know what had happened in the past and some of that past behavior and those past concerns. Um, so that that is that is where where we we came to. So I I that is that is what I know. Um, in terms of these cases that I have looked at, you know, for the podcast and um, for my work and talking to survivors. Um, yes, I have a survivor that I'm very close with um, called Joe, and they actually work with me on some of the Munchausen support stuff. And we are running uh-huh. some survivor support groups, which have been tremendous. I'm so inspired by these people. I, I can't, I can't believe that. Yeah, someone I see could... that you're on a board and and you're doing a lot of charity work, which is awesome. Yeah, so that's that's all in its nascent stages, but I'm I'm excited about it. And and, um, you know, listening to survivors talk about that experience, their experiences, they, um, you know, certainly when you use that term gaslighting, and I, <laughs> I find it so frustrating that I feel like people have started using gaslighting in a very colloquial way. <laughs> it, it, it was the most popular, it was the most searched word of 2022. I just did an episode about it. I mean, gaslighting is the official word of 2022, oh just God. like last year was vaccines. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I don't know what that sort of tells us about where we're at. I mean, certainly like what you describe your father doing to you that is gaslighting. He is trying yes. to convince you that what you know happened did not happen, that the evidence that, that you've seen is not right, that it's, you know, yes. that is like, that's one thing, right? That's gaslighting. I yes. do feel a little bit like sometimes I'm cruising around on TikTok and people are talking about gaslighting and I'm like, okay, guys, you can't just use that term everyone every time someone disagrees with you. <laughs> like, that's I feel I feel like there is a gas, there should be a gaslighting intervention. I totally yeah. agree with that. <laughs> yeah. I heard... 
I, I was watching a television show recently that I'm into called um, The White Lotus. It's on mm. HBO. And Obsessed. it's in the second season. The, the, uh, yeah, so the Abra, Aubrey uh, Plaza character, she says, don't gaslight me. And I'm like, but that, I'm like he's not really gaslighting because he hasn't said anything really to gaslight you. So, like, don't say that. I was like, you know what? I wanted yeah. to just smack them on the hand. Like, yeah. That is like, not no, the no. parlance of our we time. We don't need a clinical term for what that is. That's just, he's being defensive and a, a, he's obfuscating. Come on. Let's use the right words. I exactly. like using the like, right let, words let's, for things. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. I'm very pedantic about my language as well. So yes, I just, I, I, I would, I was like, you know, we need to correct that because, because then it becomes, it sort of, you know, goes down this sort of spiral of, uh, of misinformation too, because it's like, oh, they're gaslighting. Oh, they're gaslighting. Yeah. It's like, no guys, it's not like that. It's not like somebody is actually literally trying to, if you watch the film right you know from the 19 whatever it came in 1930s or whatever what it's actually coined after is like no that i didn't leave the light on like but the lamp right. is on no i didn't you left the lamp on right. it's like they're trying to make you feel as if you're going crazy as if the reality that you perceive which is the proper reality and your own reality is not a reality that actually exists yes. it's the reality that they are creating for you and telling you that you're crazy because you seem to believe this other reality that actually is the reality you're living in yes, yes. <laughs> and what they're doing is they are manipulating you so yeah and it's a very, very strong term and it's not something that yeah. people just sort of incidentally do to one another willy-nilly um, yeah. And so yeah, I think, exactly. but yes, that is very present in these relationships. And I think, you know, what I have observed with survivors and, um, and, and some of the coverage of the Gypsy Rose Blanchard kind of did a good job of, of highlighting this dynamic. But what you often see, there is a very cult-like hold. It's sort of a cult of one, um, yeah. where that parent, that abusive parent will, um, will have such a strong psychological hold and they will, you know, cause sometimes when the children get older, they will start coaching them into having symptoms. And so they'll tell them things like you need to cough when we're in front of the doctor or we won't be able to get you the help you need. Um, you need oh. to tell the doctor this, or we won't be able to get the check from the disability so that we can survive. So sort of these, like, they'll sort of pull them into the, into the con. Um, and then just this extreme isolation. So what a lot of the survivors yeah. that I've talked to have described is that they have this whole memory, these whole series of memories where someone would be in their life and it would be, you know, a friend or a family member or someone, and they would be their mom's favorite person and they would love them and they'd be around all the time. And then one person that day, one day that person would just be gone and they would never see them again and they would never talk to them again and that would just be like nope we don't talk to her anymore because they're the enemy now um and it's that i mean you can sort of see like oh yeah anybody who questions that person is now like is is out and so what ends up happening then and then a lot of times also this you know the abuse sort of um evolves and so one of the things that i've heard a lot of is this sort of it also transitioning into educational abuse where you know maybe they're not taking their child in for surgeries and things like that but they're saying my child has all these learning disabilities my child has this this and that wrong with them and they're telling that child you have all these things wrong with you you're never going to have a normal life so you have to go to a special school or you have to be isolated from your classmates i have to come in and you know feed you your lunch every day because you can't properly, you know, whatever it is. So it's, it's a very, like, there's a very, very strong psychological component and it makes it very difficult sure. for survivors because, you know, a lot of survivors that I've talked to, they did not realize they were being abused until they were like in their twenties and had managed to get a little bit of a separation from their abuser. And some never yeah. come around. I mean, some never come around. So, you know, you see people sort of enmeshed, or like you'll see one sibling realize that there was abuse that happened and the other sibling is just like, how could you say that? Like mom would never do that and that kind of thing. So you see, you know, because I think it's like one of the things that really struck me when I was watching your, you know, when I was watching the movie and, and having listened to some some episodes where, where you're talking about, you know, your back and forth relationship with your dad, it made me think of something one of the first experts I ever talked to about this said about like, the interviews that they do, like the forensic interviews they do with kids yeah. and that kids want their parents to be good. Like kids yeah. want their parents to be there for them and love them. And they want to believe that their parent loves them. And it's a very, very, very hard thing to have to grapple with that your parent might not feel that connection to you. And it was so moving to me to watch you go through that because I know that like, you know, some of the survivors I'm close with are really struggling with that. And they'll, they'll have those conversations where like, 
they're telling their parent they love them and their parent is giving them that back, but their parent's giving them that back because they want something from them. And yeah. it's, it's so, it's so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. And I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's an incredibly, I mean, it's, it's hard for everyone to believe that anyone could do this. The closer you are to the person that you think might be doing it, the harder it is. And I think it's hardest yeah. on the victims that end up having to look back at their whole life and realize it was a lie. That is a very poignant way <laughs> to sum it up by far. I, I feel like I, we could go on and on about all this. Um, <laughs> I know. I could talk to you for a long time. <laughs> so really quick, where can we find the podcast? Where can we find you? So the podcast is called Nobody Should Believe Me. Um, we just wrapped season one. So all eight episodes are there for listeners to binge. Um, we will be doing a season two. I'm hoping to release that next spring. We're going to have like a whole new case that we're going to look at. We're going to look more into sort of survivor experience and look at some of these systems. Um, and the best place to find me on social media is Instagram. That is the place that I am most active. I am also dipping a toe into TikTok. So if you want to come over and say hi there, I'm also mostly lurking, but sometimes creating videos over there. Andrea Dunlop is my guest today, and she is an author and just an overall really amazing person doing some really great work. Check her out and links to everything in the show notes, guys. Thank you so much. Well, that was a very interesting chat with Andrea. I mean, you think about the manipulation and the gaslighting and the just the coercive control that goes on and just the abuse. It's just child abuse that these caregivers give to these children and fabricate these ailments. And then to see how that works online in a community where they're able to sort of foster this support for their phony diseases or their phony ailments. I mean, as someone who went with his father, who was a medical doctor uh, on his rounds to see his patients, I saw people who had genuine ailments and to think that someone could manufacture that to get sympathy or to get money or, 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 or just to get attention in general. It's really disheartening, but I'm, I'm so grateful that she is bringing this to light and that we're talking about this. And it, it seems that it's something that hasn't come to light in a while. I mean, obviously there's this Gypsy Rose case that had happened before and uh, as we discussed, but I feel like this this form of abuse is, is something that, that sort of slides under the radar a lot of times. So anyways, it was a great conversation with her. Please check out her podcast, all of... Her links to her socials and the podcast are in the show notes for today's episode. And uh, so check her out. Andrea Dunlop uh, was my guest today. And so please check out Andrea's podcast. There's a link below in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a great show. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Anyways, uh, have a great week. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys all again next Friday. And remember, I do my Instagram lives every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific. So on that note, I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible. Find us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Discovery Plus, and Amazon Prime Video.